Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. It is our hope and prayer that this message would convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers and receive feedback. Simply contact us at info at ellerslie.com or give us a call at 970-686-9022. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. The Koine Jesus. Uh, that might not affect you. It might not have any... Uh, impact upon you as, as far as a name. It's a very strategically chosen name. It's a hard message to title. I have a subtitle for us, a study in the approachability of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is everything to me. As far as I'm concerned, it's everything to us as a church. He is our head. He is our focal point. This entire weekend we were talking about, are we diminishing the Father by emphasizing and making Jesus Christ preeminent? No, because the Father himself has created a pattern that said, to give me glory, bend your knee and worship the Son. When you see the Son, you will see me clearly. So Jesus himself says, I am the full manifestation of the Father. So how you treat Jesus is how you're treating the Father. And then the Spirit, are we neglecting the Spirit by exalting Jesus Christ? No, the work of the Spirit is to exalt Jesus Christ. If the Spirit is active, he is decreasing so that Jesus Christ may be seen. And this is how we honor the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is by lifting high the person of Jesus. So we're talking about a very, very important aspect of the church of Jesus Christ, and that's Jesus Christ. And so koine, the, I'll explain this as we go along, but it's a, it's a Greek word for common. And so even the association of the word koine with the person of Jesus Christ sounds incorrect. But it's very purposeful, and it wasn't me that came up with it. God himself has masterminded a way of expressing himself to us that actually, at a certain level, can cause offense and can cause a stumble. There is no way, if he truly is the God of the universe, that he would be associated with the word koine. And that's why this is such a significant message, because he himself has associated himself with that word, not me. And so even in passing it along, it can be a little awkward but this is a study in the approachability of Jesus Christ. So this is a conversation I had at uh, Creation Fest, uh, that big festival. I'm not exactly sure uh, how I ended up there. But so I was at this uh, festival, music festival, and it, it wasn't exactly uh, the perfect fit for me uh, as far as what I speak about and what I do, but there I was. And I got done speaking about Jesus, and I was at the book table, and this is, a man came up to me and asked me this question. Hey, you're a pastor, right? Yes, I am. Good. Maybe you can give me an answer to my question. No other pastor has been able to give me a satisfactory answer. Well, I'll try. When, you're up on that, when you were up on that stage, you said the name Jesus when talking about Yeshua the Messiah. How can you explain why you would call him Jesus when his name is rightly Yeshua? He was a Hebrew man with a Hebrew name, not a Greek man with a Greek name. So I said, I'd love to answer that question. And here's a sermon that will answer that question. However, I would also like to give you a tidbit of understanding of where, what my perspective is on this. Jesus' name 
is rightfully Yeshua. In the Hebrew, that was his name. His mother most likely called him Yeshua. It is the Hebrew uh, expression uh, that is the name we would understand as Joshua. And yet, one of the things I asked this man is I said, do you believe the New Testament is inspired by the Holy Spirit? That he carried along its writers to express his truth, and that truth is infallible. He said, yes. I said, do you know that the Holy Spirit didn't call him Yeshua? He called him Isus. So once you start with that understanding, the Holy Spirit himself has revealed Jesus in the New Testament, not as Yeshua, but as Isus. And Isus is just the Greek way of saying Jesus. Jesus is just an English translation. And it's not from Zeus, by the way, for those of you that have heard that ridiculous rumor. It is from Isus. And Isus is from Joshua. Yeshua. It means Yahweh saves. And so when you say Jesus, you are saying the Hebrew equivalent of Yeshua. And I will stand on that point because I believe the New Testament is in fact inspired of the Holy Spirit. For those of you that have been taught that the New Testament was first written in Hebrew, that is incorrect. It was first written in Koine Greek. The Holy Spirit himself dictating it. That is not something I want you to miss and I want you to trip over. I am a big fan of Hebrew. I am a big fan of the heritage that we have in understanding the Old Covenant. I think it's amazing. However, God himself has made a decision along the way to reveal himself in the great mysteries that have been hidden for ages and generations. He revealed them in the most extraordinary fashion, in the language of the Gentiles. He did. He did that, not me. And so as we say this message, for those of you that have a Hebrew affinity, it could run roughshod over your toes. I have a Hebrew affinity. I love the Hebrew language. I think it's extremely fascinating, extremely mysterious and profound, and yet God himself made this choice. Session one, the first 39, an introduction to the Hebrew word. Technically, if you were Hebrew, you would say, actually, there's only 24 books in the Old Testament, Eric. We divide... As the Protestants, we divide uh, the Bible a little differently, but it's the same exact books. First and Second Kings to us, Kings to them. First and Second Samuel to us, Samuel to them. They total 24 books. We total 39. They're the exact same books. Okay, so just in case you have any confusion on that point. So I'm going to call it the first 39. A brief introduction to the Bible. Now, this is going to possibly be a little more simplistic of a message than, than you're used to hearing me give. I'm used to speaking to Bible students, and as a result, we start at maybe a little higher, de- or higher plane or deeper depth when we start. I'm wanting to train myself to start more simply. I want to begin to treat this as a local church and not just as a student church as an extension of a Bible college. And so, a brief introduction to the Bible. Right around 3760 B.C., we have something that is known as creation. You know that you can actually tally up the years that this world has been here. Since God first said, let there be light, we can actually tally it up. And it would go back to a date, except for it wouldn't typically be called this, but 3760 B.C. Doesn't that sound like it's pretty recent? Yeah. It is. It's not that far back. And God created the heavens and the earth. The first 2,447 years, there was no Bible. 
which is an incredible thought. Could you imagine living on earth without the revelation of God? And yet, we did not yet have the Bible. The Bible came about at a very specific juncture in time. The Hebrew nation was in captivity in Egypt. Moses came along, stood before Pharaoh. There were 10 plagues, the final one being the Passover, and the plague and the firstborn sons of all Egypt were, were slain. And the people of Israel came out across a parted Red Sea into a wilderness. And the beginning of the Old Testament that we know, the first 39 books, began right about that point in time. So right around 1,313 B.C., the Bible begins. Now, for those of you that would say, well, we don't actually know when the book of Job was written. It's a, it's a good assessment. However, it was not just hanging around and considered the Bible. It was brought in and canonized as part of the Bible. So even if it was written before, and no one really knows who wrote it or when it was written, so it's a ridiculous debate anyways. But even if it was written before, it was not yet considered the Bible. The Bible's expression begins right around this exact date. And you know what it started with? It started with the finger of God. It's a strange thing because when you're in Exodus 20, you feel like you're fairly far into the Bible when finally God writes with his own finger the Ten Commandments. However, did you know that that was written as the first statement of canon? God's finger starts the canon of God. The scriptures are started by his finger upon tablets of stone. Isn't that an incredible thought? And they're handed to Moses, and he's entrusted with this. And God communicates something to Moses, and what does he say to Moses? Write this down in a book. And the Lord said to Moses, come up to me in the mount and be there, and I will give thee tables of stone and a law and commandments which I have written. What an incredible statement. That thou mayest teach them. And he gave unto Moses when he had made an end of communion with him upon Mount Sinai, two tables of testimony, tables of stone, written with the finger of God. That's an amazing foundation stone, an amazing beginning point to something we know as the scriptures. The book commissioned by God. You know that Moses didn't wake up one day and say, it needs to be written down. You know that God is the one that started the book and he's the one that commissioned the writing of it. And the Lord said unto Moses, write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write thou these words, for after the tenor of these words I have made a covenant with thee and with Israel. And Moses wrote this law, and delivered it unto the priests and the sons of Levi, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and unto all the elders of Israel. I think for many of us, because the Bible goes back and covers those 2,400 some odd years in the scriptures, we assume in a sense, in a strange way, that it started, that the Bible was written way back in the beginning. When in actuality, it was only written in 1,313 B.C. Isn't that a strange thought? Well, it's not that strange if you think it through. But most of us have a different sort of mentality about it. It started with the finger of God. And then God commissions and says, write this for memorial. Write this down in a book. Rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, which is quite a statement. Rehearse it in the ears of Yeshua. So the key truth points. I'm going to start adding some key truth points. Key point number one, the Bible is God's idea. This is not just a collection of men's works. Men 
collaborating together, saying, you know what, let's capture this. Let's write this down. This will be good for the heritage of Israel. God commissioned the book. The book is God's idea. Key point number two, the Bible is God's word. Now last, well, was it last week? I, yeah, it was last week I went through the 10 simple proofs. And it was establishing the fact that the Bible is in fact God's word. That is a huge, ridiculous debate point in the postmodern era to say, well, I mean, it doesn't actually say in the Bible it's God's word. Actually, it does. And so to clarify that point is what we went through last week. And so the Bible is in fact God's word. With the Ten Commandments, are you going to say that that's not God's word? Of course not. Everything that Moses is hearing, God is speaking it to him. Write it down. It starts with the very premise that God speaks, and then Moses writes down. The entire idea of the scriptures is it's God's word written down. Scripture means the written. God's word means the revealed or the spoken. God's word has been delivered by the Holy Spirit unto men. And then those men were carried along by the Holy Spirit to write it down. We call it scripture. But that scripture is, in fact, God's word. It's just written down God's word. And then guess what? Jesus is the embodiment of God's word. He's the fleshed out version of it. So a glossary. The word of God. We'll call it the revelation of God's nature, his purpose, his promises, his plan, his person. He has revealed it. How God does this is rather extraordinary, but God, in and through his word, which we know in the Greek is the word logos, it's a pattern, it's an infrastructure, it's a communication. I I don't know if I shared this last week or I shared it in between. I'll share it again just in case. But a word, I have something going on inside of my mind, and you need to understand it. So what do I do? I take that thought and I wrap it in a word, a word that you know as well. It's a common word to you and to me. And then I loft it into the air via my tongue. It slips in through your ear canal and you take it into your mind and you unpack it because you know that same word. And guess what? You can actually read my thoughts. You read my thoughts and understand what is going on inside of me because I used a word, a common word that you would know. This is how God has revealed himself. He has spoken. He has revealed. He has given. He has taken who he is, and he's lofted it into the air, if you will, and then we have received it. The formation of that word was by the Spirit. The delivery of that word was by the Spirit. The unpacking of that word was by the Spirit. It was spiritually discerned. And yet, that is what is enunciated in Scripture. And so the Scriptures, the Word of God written down and preserved with the utmost care. And then the Bible, and this has multiple names to it, but the Bible, the canon, is another term, which I'll describe in just a second, the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's 66 individual books of Scripture organized into one grand, unchanging, timeless, living volume. And then one final thing I'd like to put in this list is Jesus. It's it's funny because most of us, when you're thinking about all these, the Word of God, the Scriptures, the Bible, the canon, the Old Testament, the New Testament, you're thinking of text, You're thinking of letters compiled into words. And yet, what's amazing is the Apostle John throws a massive curveball at us at the very beginning of the New Testament and says, you know that word that was expressed? That is actually Jesus. He is that word made flesh. So, Jesus, the word of God become human. Not text. The word of God become human. God with us, walking on two feet. So the Bible is broken up into two, 
two testaments. A testament is a covenant. So we have 66 books divided into two sections, two testaments. So we have the Old Testament, which is the first 39 books, and the New Testament, which is the final 27 books. And yes, the word final is actually purposely selected. The first 39, tested and proven. This first 39 has been tested and proven over centuries and centuries. It is quite the collection of writing. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. All scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is given by inspiration out of God. The concept is it's God-breathed. It is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So what I want to do is I want to go back to the year 1313, that time period where God is with his own finger writing down the Ten Commandments, and he is commissioning the beginnings of a book. We don't get to take an inside peek of how this book was written, how long it took. All we know is that God commissioned it, and we know that Moses wrote it. But in the process is we have this established authority in Israel, and it is Moses, but it is also, more specifically, Moses and Aaron. They are the heads of the, Levi, the family of the tribe of Levi, and God is, in a sense, said they are in charge. They are the ones that will administer my law. They are the ones that are entrusted with the word of God. That's just how it started, and this was entrusted to the tribe of Levi, but very specifically, Moses and Aaron. And so in the process here, as God is establishing his authority, there's a little skirmish uh, that takes place. Moses and Aaron invite the people of Israel, the leaders of Israel, to come up for a council, and they refuse. Headed by a man named Korah, and it's okay to boo. Korah. Korah does not see any reason why he should submit. Who are you, Moses and Aaron, that we should submit to you? What, what, why are you any different than us? We're all holy. We're all set apart. We're all God's chosen people. Who are you? And this is precisely the challenge to the word of God that has always existed throughout the ages and generations. It's called the Korah Rebellion. And for whatever reason, it lingers inside the church. Who are what is the word of God that we should submit to it? God has established his authority. God has said, this is the final say. This is my word. And then he entrusts it to Moses. And Moses writes it down, and that is known as the scripture. And we submit. When we submit to the writings of Moses, we're not submitting to Moses. We're submitting to God. This book is not just the writings of men. It is the writing of God. He carried along these men to write it. And so in this story of the Korah Rebellion, we have something known as a rod. Technically 12 rods. A rod is another word for, get this, canon. So when you understand that the Bible is known as canon, it's actually saying it's the rod. But the better way of saying it is it's the rod of rods. Okay, so look at uh, the, my subtitle. One rod to rule them all. There is a rod... There is an authority. In Israel, a rod is a symbol of authority. So it was always the head of every tribe that would hold the rod. And he would hold it in his right hand, which is a symbol of power and authority and dominion. So a king would have a scepter, which is a rod. And he would hold it in his right hand. And so in the, the nation of Israel, this was understood. So each of the tribes had a rod. They each had a rod. 
And so God asked all of the tribes to give up their rod and to bring them into the tabernacle and to set them before God in the tabernacle of witness and let God define who has the authority, which rod rules them all. Do you guys know what happened? Everyone wrote their name on the rod. Aaron's rod was written on the name of the tribe of Levi. And guess what God hallmarked? Uh-huh. Any questions? Aaron's rod, which, by the way, is just a branch of a tree cut off. And when a branch is cut off, it doesn't live any longer. However, Aaron's rod, after how many years, I don't know, comes to life. And it blossoms. It bears almonds overnight in the temple. And God, well, they carried it out the next day, held it before all Israel as a token against the rebels. Any questions? Who has the authority here? You know that Jesus is the rod that budded before all of Israel? He was proven by God, by the very nature, by the very words spoken throughout the 39 books that lead up to him. He is, in fact, the rod. He is the rod of all rods. Bend your knee, for he is the king. It's the principle of canon. Canon is based on the principle of a rod. It's like a measurement. And so you have a rod, and then the next book comes along, and we say, hmm, is it divine? Well, it has to prove to be from the same root. You know if, that if the tree were to, if the, the rod were to bear oranges, you'd know it's not from the same root? What would it have to bear? It'd have to bear almonds. It'd have to bear a like fruit. It would have to be in perfect measurement. It'd have to have the same wood. It couldn't just be mahogany. It has to be the same wood. It has to bear the same nature. And if it does, and it has the divine seal upon it, and it measures perfectly, you then consider it a measuring device too. It becomes canon as well. And this is how the Old Testament was built. You always measure the new books against the previous. And if it can pass the sniff test, it has to be perfect in its measurement. It has to bear the same fruit. It has to bear the same nature of wood. It cannot violate it. It cannot go deviant in any regard. Otherwise, it is considered apocryphal. It is thrown off as false. It, it, it might be good writing. It might have great things to say, but it is not divine. And so the Bible has been collected this way, built this way over the centuries. And so we have the story of the rods, and this is when Jesus is arriving on the scene. 39 rods laid together, all with one voice, saying, we await the one who can measure against us perfectly. The Bible is tested and proven. Key point number four, the Bible is divinely authoritative. Key point number five, the Bible perfectly agrees with itself. This is just the principle of canon. It's been tested and proven over and over and over again. You don't just take any word. There's a lot of prophets in Israel's history, a lot of them. How were they deemed false? Well, first of all, what they said didn't come true. That definitely was a dead giveaway. But also, it went against the previous revelation. If you say anything that goes against the revelation of what God has already sealed as canon, we know that's how we test the spirit of the prophet. How can you test anything unless you have a standard to test it against? Well, the Hebrew culture had a standard. It was known as the Word of God, the Scriptures. And as a result, the canon test is one of the number one ways that we have confidence in the Scriptures. And what's amazing is it tells of a Messiah, and it gives such an elaborate test for how this Messiah ought to be, how he will live, what he will do. Guess what? If he doesn't do it, he's not the Messiah. You know that this test is absolutely impossible? It is. And do you know who fulfilled it? Well, you could take a guess if you want. 
I'll make it clear as we go through this. The first and the second. The Bible says the same message all throughout. So this is just an illustration to show you the idea that the Bible is in agreement with itself. I'm just using one little symbol, and many of you have heard me talk about this over and over again. It is one of the global themes in Scripture, and you could call it first and second. When you read the New Testament, you see this concept of flesh, spirit. We all start and we're born in Adam. We are born of the flesh, but we must be born again. There must be a second life. This symbol, this principle, this gospel idea has been throughout the entire scriptures. The New Testament is in perfect agreement with the Old Covenant. However, it fulfills the Old Covenant. It's not like the Old Covenant. It fulfills it. It grows out of it and answers all of its questions. So we have the first and the second. There is a first and there is a second. I know that sounds like a pretty basic thing. It's like, well, you don't need the Bible to know that. Well, the Bible goes out of its way to clarify Look for the first, look for the second. There's always a first, and there's always a second. Cain and Abel. The first, Cain, is rejected. Abel's offering is received. God always receives the second. He never seems satisfied with the first. Is that on accident? No, this is very purposeful. Ishmael, Isaac. God is not satisfied with Ishmael. It's born of the flesh, self-effort. And yet he's satisfied with the second, the one born of promise. Esau and Jacob, twins in the womb of Rebekah. Esau comes out first, and yet for whatever reason, Esau just doesn't please God. It actually says God hated Esau. It's like, whoa. But Jacob he loved? What? Jacob is a heel-grabber, conniving guy. What is it about Jacob? Also known as Israel. You see, God chose to say, it's not because the second is perfect. God has chosen the second. Manasseh and Ephraim, the sons of Joseph. Jacob is blessing the sons of Joseph, and he sticks his hand of blessing upon the second. And Joseph's like, no, no, father, that's the second. He goes, I know it. Saul and David, the first king of Israel was rejected. The second one was a man after God's own heart. Mount Sinai, Mount Zion, old covenant, new covenant. Ooh, that's right. You see, the first one cannot please God. It doesn't mean that its words are wrong. It is a perfect revelation of God's righteousness. However, it can't save you. It is words that lead you to a savior. It's the second one that offers life. Flesh and spirit. Adam and Jesus. So here's the second point. This is how the Bible all agrees with itself. The first will initially appear stronger. This is the way it always looks. The first always comes out looking stronger. But in the end, it will be proven to be the weaker. This is just a principle throughout all of scripture. And you'll see it in all the stories you read. The second, on the other hand, will at first appear weaker, but in the end, it will prove to be the stronger. The elder shall serve the younger. The first shall submit to the second. So this is just a quote that God gives unto Rebekah and Isaac when Rebekah is asking, why are these two twins in my womb wrestling with each other? So when the Lord said unto her, two nations are in thy womb. And two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people. So when you look at the story of Esau and Jacob, which one looks stronger? Esau, he's the hairy hunter. And then we have Jacob. What's he known as? The plain man dwelling in tents. That is the most pathetic description of any human in the Bible. And so who looks strong and who looks weak? The first looks strong, the second one looks weak, and yet what does God say? The elder... Esau shall serve the younger Jacob. It doesn't look that way. All throughout the story, it actually looks like it's going in the opposite direction. And guess what? 
God's right. Well, God's always right. Whatever God says is always proven true. Always. Esau and Jacob, the hairy hunter and the plain man dwelling in tents. God is creating a picture for us. It's always sort of a grotesque thing to realize that hairiness uh, is a picture of the firstborn. You know, this guy, this guy was so hairy that when Isaac dressed up with goat skin, uh, Isaac was like, yeah, you sure do feel like Esau. It's like, this guy had some problems with hair. So he was the hairy hunter. He's the guy who's self-sufficient. He doesn't need a savior. He doesn't need a birthright. He has it in himself. And God says, I reject the first. That mentality cannot stand in my presence. But what does Jacob have? Jacob's not the best guy. Okay, his name itself means heel grabber, supplanter, deceiver, layer of snares. You see, he's not going about it the right way, but guess what he esteems? He knows he needs help. He knows he needs something outside of what he has. And he thinks Esau has it. So do we. We think the firstborn has it too. We go to our flesh and we try and make Christianity work. We're just like Jacob. God has his hand on Jacob's life. And Jacob is grabbing the wrong thing. But what does Jacob eventually grab? God. Wrestles with God and will not let him go. He says, you have what I need. That is Israel. That is the people of God. Right there. It's the ones that grab and will not let go. Adam and Jesus. We have the man of earth and the man of heaven. Here we, it says, that Paul's writing about it in 1 Corinthians 15. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural. He says the flesh came first. And afterward, that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. The second is the Jesus picture. The second is the spirit. The second is the one that brings salvation. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now, I want you to just pause for a second and try and guess where I'm going with this. Two covenants. Two languages. Hebrew, Greek. No one in here, if you're going to feel spiritual, is going to choose the Greek. No one. And yet, God chose the weaker to reveal his great strength. The very book that declares this truth is supernaturally built to demonstrate this truth. Not only does the Bible declare it, but the Bible reveals it in its very nature, in its very substance. So, Genesis 5.1, the very beginnings of the chronicles of the lineage of Adam. What does God say? This is the book of the generations of Adam. What is the old covenant? It's the book of the generations of the firstborn. That's what it is. In the day that God created man in the likeness of God made he him, this is the book that chronicles that. You know the first words of the New Testament? The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And it's written in Koine Greek. Christ's book, as strange as this is, is written in Greek. Key truth points. Key point number six, the Bible witnesses of Jesus Christ. Oh, you hang around here, you're going to see that every which way we turn. The Bible, and I would call this, hermeneutics is the way we approach Scripture, the way we properly handle it. The number one tool that I would want to teach any of you in here for how to rightly approach the scriptures is you need to make sure you know what it's talking about. It's talking 
about Jesus. It is revealing Jesus. The Bible is the great witness of the one known as Jesus Christ. Yes, it does a lot of other things, but that's its primary agenda. Think not, says Jesus, that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. So what is before Jesus? We have 39 books, oftentimes typically simply said the law and the prophets. Yes, there are other things in there. There are other types of writing, but that's the quick summation. And so Jesus is saying, think not that I've come to destroy the first 39 books. I am come, I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Jesus has come and he came to fulfill 39 books. He's literally going to manifest and reveal in his own life what those 39 books are talking about. Jesus on the road to Emmaus. So Jesus has died on the cross and now he's risen again. And for whatever reason, his disciples don't recognize him. It's sort of always been a mystery to me in my mind. They're walking down the road, and yet their hearts are burning. This man is talking to them of the mysteries of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. It's Jesus talking. But here's what it says in Luke 24. Then he, speaking of Jesus, opened their understanding that they might understand, and I'll say it this way, the first 39 books. Who opened their understanding? Jesus. You see, before Jesus we do not understand the first 39. We do not understand it. It is a mystery. It's profound, it's high moral, but it is not understood. Who do we need to understand the first 39? We need Jesus. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, now remember, the whole Bible began at Moses, so that's beginning at the beginning, and all the prophets, he, speaking of Jesus, expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The witness of the 39. So remember how we describe it as the law and the prophets. Well, these law and these prophets, imagine they all get together and all the writers get together and they compare notes, which is what the first 39 books is. It's a comparing of notes of all the 39. It says, what do you see? Well, I see a man who is a worm and no man and his hands and feet are pierced and his bones are all out of joint, and his heart is like wax inside of him. He's surrounded by a throng, and they're mocking him. They're saying, come down from there if you are who you say you are. But I don't fully understand it. What do you see, Isaiah? Well, I see a man who is dying as an intercessor for a nation, that he's bearing the infirmity and the iniquity of a nation, that he's as a lamb silent unto slaughter. What do you see? I see one who was born in Bethlehem. I see one who was born of a virgin. However, his beginnings are from of old and from everlasting. I don't know who this is. And the Old Testament is constantly filled with questions. Who is he talking about? Who is this? The witness of the 39, they see something, but they can't fully tell you what it is they see. You need the sight to be able to understand the old. You need the new. You need the second to be able to understand the first. Search the scriptures, says Jesus, for in them you think you have eternal life. Just because you were entrusted with this text does not mean you have eternal life. See, they thought, hey, look, we're the ones that God chose. We have the text. We are the Hebrew. Jesus says, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And you will not come to me that you may might have life. There's life, but it's found in the second. You know what a reproof that is to the Hebrew nation? You know how offensive that is? 
You see, I don't know how many. I know we have one guy who has Jewish roots in here. However, most of us are just classified as Gentiles. And so as a result, we, we get excited about things like this. Like, yeah, speak it. We don't understand how the culture of the Jews was truly an exceptional culture, a set-apart culture, and oftentimes with nose tipped upwards. And it looked down on all the other nations, the Gentile dogs. We would be considered dogs. And our language that we would speak would be a dog language. So just to set the stage for some of the things that uh, we're going to walk through. For had you believed Moses, says Jesus, you would have believed me. For he wrote of me. Wait a minute. You're saying that Moses wrote of you? What audacity to say that. It's not audacity, it's just truth. Jesus is, in fact, God. Who is Moses writing about? What is the law given for? It was given as a schoolmaster to train this people to recognize that there is one that will come that will save them from their sin. The law did one thing, showed them their sin. You need a savior, don't you? We do. Moses wrote of Jesus. The law and the prophets testify. So, Mount of Transfiguration in the New Testament, one of the most profound scenes that most of us don't ever think twice about. Jesus and three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, are up on a mountain. We don't even know what mountain it is. But all we know is that, for whatever reason, though they are a little tired, they wake up and they see something. And it's the strangest thing. They see Jesus and Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. They see the law and the prophets, that's what it symbolizes, standing there and basically saying, this is he. This is the one we testified of. And then there's a booming voice from heaven. Listen to him. Heed this one. He's the rod that's budding. He has the authority. He is the expression. He is the fulfillment. He is the Messiah you've awaited. God himself has gone out of his way to make this very clear. 39 books all together with one voice say he is the one we saw. The Mount of Transfiguration, the law, the prophet, and the booming voice of the Father, they all agree. So as we begin to navigate through this message, I want you to allow God to expand your understanding, first of all, of the brilliance and the supernatural nature of scriptures, but also of the fact that God chose to come in a very, very humble form. Because what we're going to go through is we're going to go through the basis of the Hebrew, which is so profound, so mysterious, so high. And God deliberately chose to take something so low, so common, and reveal himself that way. Shocking and absolutely beautiful for each one of us as Christians. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludi pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns cheering you on as Christ cultivates his set-apart life within you.